0: This morning, we continue our sermon series on the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians. And uh, the letter started by laying out the work of salvation that involved Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then Paul remarks in a more personally directed focus, starting in verse 15, that he sees this work of God resulting in faith and love among the Ephesian believers, And that leads him to constantly pray for them. He prays particularly for resurrection power. That brings us to chapter 2. He continues to tell them, here's what you used to be, but now, against all reason, as an evidence of pure grace, this is what God has done for you. This is what God has done to you. So we pick up in chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Listen carefully. because, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, these are marvelous words to read, to realize, are spoken to your people throughout the ages who trust in Jesus. Lord, as you use the Apostle Paul to speak to the Ephesians, speak these same words to us with the same power from the same spirit behind them, that we would be reminded of eternal truth, that Jesus would be shaped in us, individually as and as a community. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, First thing we're going to look at is the reality of sin, and then the nature of sin, and then the antidote, the reality of sin. These verses unpack as clearly as anywhere else in the Bible what we could call bad news. They're talking about bad news. We can't, and we shouldn't want to gloss over these verses talking about bad news because understanding the reality of sin is so very critical to any measure of health, let alone life itself. But a lot of people would disagree about the need, about the importance, the centrality of talking about bad news. And they would even disagree from within Christianity, some at least. A popular televangelist and megachurch pastor, for example, has publicly stated very clearly, I don't really like to talk about sin. I don't want to burden my people. I want to lift them up. I want to point them to joy. I want to encourage them. That's one of his primary MOs. From a secular standpoint, we're less surprised that many psychologists and educators would say that sin talk is damaging to young psyches. It suppresses the, the need for the natural flowering of self-esteem, for, for the natural maturation. It piles on shame and guilt unnecessarily. That's what a lot of psychologists and educators would say. And, and, and people tend to say this, that's my problem with organized religion. It makes you feel bad about yourself, and I don't need that. But rejecting the reality of sin isn't just denial. Paul would say, it's deadly. I think most of you can relate to me in this part of life. I Really don't enjoy going to the mechanic, even for routine maintenance, because I'll I'll drive in for an oil change and a tire rotation, happy to pay thirty-five dollars, um, with a perfectly fine running car, and inevitably the phone call on my mobile two hours later is, "You need eight hundred seventy-three dollars worth of repairs that you didn't know about." The reality is, it's his job to find problems and head them off ahead of time. And the reality is my car won't be running perfectly fine if I live in denial, if I constantly reject the bad news and pretend like I know better. The the question isn't whether a mechanic is going to give me bad news or not. The question is whether I'm willing to face reality. Bad news from a mechanic can actually be a blessing. Last year, I remember being perfectly happy to spend the $23 or so on a new oil drain plug because oil was leaking, and the mechanic finding that prevented something far worse than spending $23. Bad news can actually be life-preserving if it heads off something catastrophic. Some of you don't like coming to church because you don't want to hear bad news about yourself. And maybe it's just the wrong impression that that's what church is about, Or maybe you've had a a bad prior church experience where you got guilt piled on you every single week. You felt it from the other people and you left every Sunday feeling condemned. As a pastor, I'm not only sorry for your experience, I'm upset about that because that's not biblical Christianity. That's not the taste of God that you should leave with on a Sunday morning. So we don't pile judgment on you, but neither do we avoid any serious talk about sin. We honestly and openly and regularly talk about sin and say with a straight face that this is the most loving and compassionate thing we could possibly do. It's the healthiest path we could take. Part of the resistance to talking about sin comes from the impression that sin is defined by do's and don'ts, by a list of morality rules. Uh, it's the impression that the way to avoid hell is to be a good boy or a good girl, to, to walk the straight and narrow. But sin's corrupting, deadly influence is everywhere. To use a medical analogy, it's, it's systemic infection. And so often, it's underneath the surface, why are you frustrated at work, for example? Sin is the root cause underneath the infighting, the gossip, the unjust treatment that you receive from your boss, the, the, the rat race of jockeying for position, all of the feelings of futility in your work. Sin is the root cause. Why is there turmoil at home? Sin is the root cause of any passive-aggressive behavior that you engage in the silent treatment, the outbursts, the resentment. Why are you unsatisfied in general? It's because sin is at work. You're looking for satisfaction and meaning and belonging in all the wrong places because you don't believe God's promises. When, when you put so many other things in the place of God, in front of God, first in line, if you will, that is a worship disorder. That's exactly what the first two commandments are talking about. Don't do it. First and foremost, that's the foundation of life. No part of life is immune from this deadly reality of sin. Naming and facing our worst enemy is the smartest, it's the healthiest thing we could possibly do. That's the reality of sin that we have to face. We also need to understand, secondly, the nature of sin. How does it come at us? Don't miss how Paul starts verse 1. As for you, you were dead. He doesn't mince words. And then in verses 2 to 3, he says that all of us are held captive by death through three influences. This is where we get this triumvirate of influences of the world, the devil, and our sinful nature, or the flesh. The world, the devil, our sinful nature. First, the world. Paul says... Um, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. This is the water we swim in. This is the air we breathe, the culture that surrounds us, the culture that we were raised in. If we look back at family culture that shaped the way we think, that shaped our values, that shaped our priorities… We might find in our past a sense of duty, a strong sense of family identity, your your clan, whatever that means for your particular family or your people group or your culture. You might find an unwritten, unspoken social hierarchy that you don't violate, an idea of, of what's good and what's proper, whether or not you abide by that today or you push it away as something that um, that, that you hate, that you want to run away from, that shaped you in some way. But what surrounds us now is a worldview that is becoming more and more consistent, not so much dependent on our culture, our background, our particular family. It's, it's becoming more consistent because of media and technology that sort of level the playing field, wherever you came from, however you were raised, in whatever country, uh, depending on freedoms, of course. And, and this n- worldview that is especially uh, present in the younger generations. This worldview emphasizes personal autonomy. You decide what's good for you. You pursue what makes you happy, what fulfills you. There's a narcissism at root here because this worldview says that you should focus on self's pleasure, self's worth, self's status, and power and career and family, there tends to be a rejection of authority, or at least a resistance against authority, but especially against ultimate authority that God would claim as King over all. That might not be all that different from the Roman Empire and the people in Ephesus, to uh, into which Paul was speaking these words of life. The, the problem with the world, our culture the air we breathe. The problem is we, a fish, for example, can't describe the water in which it swims. It's all it knows. We have intelligence, we have self-awareness, we have introspection, we have other voices that help us, but uh, it's difficult. Sometimes it's almost impossible to break free from these shaping influences of background and culture without outside, especially divine, intervention especially without the the revelation of God in Christ to us through the Scriptures, aided by the Holy Spirit. It'd be like a fish trying to escape the ocean on its own, or even having the thought that it wanted to get somewhere else. Finding Nemo being the clear exception, as we all know. 42 Sherman, or P. Sherman 42 Wallaby Way, as uh, we all remember this useless information. So how do you assess the the cultural influences on your life? How do you detect the air that you breathe? How do you recognize the ways of this world? That could be a sermon series on its own, but author and pastor David Wells gives us a simple tip. He says, you can recognize the ways of this world wherever sin seems acceptable and righteousness seems strange. Oh, how that characterizes way too much of what we are surrounded by, and too often what we take in through our eyes, through our ears, with our, own, with our whole beings. The ways of the world, wherever sin seems acceptable and righteousness seems strange. The second influence towards death is the devil the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. It's a huge can of worms. Just a few simple thoughts this morning. First, if you think Satan is a mythical, figurative, boogeyman kind of guy, you need to grapple seriously with the fact that Jesus treated him very clearly as a real and powerful being, as an adversary roaring, uh, prowling around like a, a lion, waiting to devour. Satan's name refers to one of his main strategies. He's the accuser. This is how he accuses, in very subtle ways. Do you, do you really think you can be forgiven for all that you've done, for doing that yet again? Do you really think anyone, let alone a God, who is going to love you after that? You're a failure. You're a nobody, and he's also the deceiver. He undermines truth with whispers and lies. If God exists, why isn't he helping you? Why is he just leaving you to suffer in your misery? Why hasn't he answered all those prayers? You're a good person. Doesn't a good father care for his children if he loves? He's not listening. He accuses, he deceives. But Jesus is our advocate before the Father. Not only our defender, but he's taken the punishment on the cross. And Jesus is the truth against every lie of the evil one. The third influence toward death is what the text calls the flesh. But it's our own sinful nature, verse verse 3. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires And thoughts. Flesh isn't body as opposed to spirit. It's not the spiritual versus the material. Flesh is really talking about the the sinful nature that is within us. It's saying that the reality of sin is not merely that you have a bad record because you've made mistakes. It's that you have a flawed nature. Sometimes I like to listen to country music in the car. Uh, when I hit traffic, I go to ninety four point seven. That's my uh, that's my uh, getaway mentally. And one song by Luke Bryan says this: "I believe most people are good." The second stanza starts and ends with that, and that becomes the refrain: "I believe most people are good." And, and I get that. This is a guy who probably lives a cleaned up life, who grew up in a super polite. Uh, American South among middle to upper middle class citizens I get that he can think that but at best it's only true on the surface as in the people he's singing about don't do drugs they don't take advantage of innocent people they don't steal they don't trash other people's cars I believe most people are good we could say yeah at least the people I hang out with But real goodness has to be measured against God's perfect holiness. And the problem with, I believe most people are good, is that the Bible would flat out disagree. It would contradict that. Paul quotes in Romans 3, he quotes Psalm 14, when he says, There is no one who does good, not even one. We don't want to believe that. We want to believe Luke Bryan. We want to think positive thoughts about ourselves, about our neighbors, about our culture, but the bad news is inescapable. There is no one who does good, not even one. If you just had a bad record, you could fix it. You could make amends. You could say sorry. You could start a new winning streak of goodness, but when Paul points to your flawed nature, he's not just saying that you're sick with Sin. He's saying that you're dead in sin. First thing that he said in verse chapter two: You're dead. You don't just need the right treatment. You need your your flawed nature to be made new. And if that's the need, there's only one hope. Lastly, the antidote. We started about talking about bad news. And if that's true, addressing it head on, openly and honestly honestly is the most loving thing we could do. It's the most healthy path we could take. But but look, I, I understand if you keep God at a distance, if you have no interest in spiritual things, chances are you don't quite believe that the bad news is that bad or that it applies to you. You would say with Luke Bryan, I believe I'm pretty good. Along with most people. But for others, if this truth of Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3 rings true, if it resonates in your heart, if it scares you, even, if it sobers you up and grieves you, know that there is good news that doesn't just treat the bad news, the good news undoes the bad news when you poke or shock or or treat a live body, you you expect a a response to the stimulus, right? You hit the little part of your knee and you you expect the reflex. You you inject um, adrenaline into somebody and you expect the heart rhythm to change. But spiritually dead is like physically dead. You don't expect anything. Because dead is dead. If you're still dead in sin, as Paul says these Ephesian believers used to be, then spiritual treatment, whether that is prayer, whether that's reading the Word of God, whether that's taking the sacraments, whether that's coming to church and participating in the ministry of the people of God, if you're spiritually dead, then spiritual uh, treatment is not going to have any effect. You're going to stay dead. Just like if you're physically dead, the medical team can do all it wants. It's not going to change that you're gone. The stimulus gets no response. So a diagnostic question to ask, especially in times of suffering and crisis, especially, the diagnostic question to ask is, does the truth about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, does it impact me? Does it move me in my mind, in my heart, in my will? Does it stimulate some kind of reaction? Here's a good reaction. Over the years, I've counseled some couples who are on the brink of divorce. Things don't look good. They're, they look ugly. And I have gone straight to the heart of the gospel Sometimes in tears, sometimes with passionate pleading. If God has forgiven you much, how can you stew an unforgiveness towards your spouse? In in other words, if you claim this gospel reality as yours vertically, and you are refusing to extend that gospel reality horizontally, there's got to be some dissonance in you. How can you take grace and mercy from God and continue to withhold grace and mercy from other people? The implicit question, the implicit answer is you can't if you are really in Christ. And when that poke, when that shocking paddle set of God's Word mediated through a flawed human being strikes a couple in whom Christ resides there's a response because there's spiritual life. Spiritual treatment applies to spiritually alive people. It gets a response, not right away, not a magical fix, not everything's rosy and they live happily ever after, but there's conviction of sin through the truth. That inner tension can't just be left on its own. It can't be ignored. It has to be resolved with a... Yes, I believe these things, and yes, I need to dig deep because that means God has given me power to forgive because I have been forgiven. He gives me power to extend grace and mercy because I've been a recipient of grace and mercy. But for others, for others, the same gospel, the same pleading, the the same so-called tension pointed out falls on deaf ears, and Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 sure seems like an accurate description of what's going on, dead in transgressions and sins, like a physically dead body that is gone, unable to respond to shock treatment, unable to hear, unable to say yes, because there's no Holy Spirit vitality. One of my grad school professors said this of the gospel, of these polarizing responses. How can you have the same gospel, but here it it brings life, and here it leaves in death? He said, the same sun that melts butter hardens clay. There's no difference. The same sun that produces the fruit of the vine, something wonderful, can also wither a plant and leave it thorny and brambly and dead which is it spiritual diagnostic question especially in times of suffering and pain does the gospel move you the the gospel the word simply means good news and that's why it's absolutely biblical it's accurate it's it's technically on point to talk about bad news The gospel is very simply, very literally good news that God has provided the cure. He's delivered the perfect antidote. We'll go deeper next week, so this is just a glimpse. Verses 1 through 3 do not represent biblical Christianity on their own. It's not possible for me to just stop a sermon at verse 3 and say, You're dead. Let's pray. That's not a Christ-centered sermon. That's not a biblically honoring sermon. We have to at least dip our toes into verse 4, and then we'll jump in next week. Because bad news, yes, is important. Yes, it's, it's necessary to appreciate the good news, but bad news is only half of getting us to where we need to be. The good news begins with these words, but God. And GRCers, those of you who are veterans, what do we say about but God those are gospel words. Our NIV translation sort of um, moves words around to emphasize, but literally verse 4 starts, but God, because of His great love for us, being rich in mercy, but God. There it is. There's hope. There's light. There's why faith is rewarded, because God is at work despite your mess-ups, despite my failures, despite the deadness that characterizes us apart from His intervening grace. But God, those are gospel words, He is rich in mercy. And because of His great love for us, what did God do? He made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. Verse 6, we'll repeat it. God raised us up with Christ. You are dead in sin. You are hopeless. You are rightly in despair. But God, but God, resurrection power, which is what we've been talking about for the last month, is exactly what Paul hasn't stopped thinking about. He's still, even though we turned a chapter, those chapter of divisions didn't exist in his letter that he was just spilling out of his heart and mind to these Ephesians, he's still talking about, thinking about, saturated with resurrection power because that is the antidote to the reality and nature of sin, which brings death, new life in Christ, risen life, alive life, as we've sung. Is yours, if you believe in this Jesus, that his life was perfectly obedient and righteous, that his nature was perfect, pure, he never sinned, that his death was suffered in your place to pay for your dead sins and transgressions, and that in his death he rose in victory. I'm alive because he lives. And that life is yours as you trust in Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, from death to life, there's no telling of this best story, truest story, most powerful story ever. There's no telling of it without resurrection. We were once lost, but now we're found. But it's worse, Lord. We were once dead, but now we're alive if we believe in you. So bring new life here to us. Impact every man and woman and child here with resurrection power, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And let us see your glory exalted as a result. We pray in the name of the risen Savior, Jesus. Amen.